listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Bible reading from Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 23. Let's hear the word of God. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Amen. This is God's word. As we said earlier, here at Trinity, we're at the beginning of a new sermon series, looking at the Ten Commandments, and uh, focusing today on the Second Commandment. The Ten Commandments famously are laws that God has given us to live by. Now, the term law... Uh, is a term that's often used in the Bible to refer to more than just the Ten Commandments. Often it's used to refer to all of God's instruction, and in particular his instruction to his people in the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, And when we get to the New Testament, and for people living after the time of the New Testament, which is all of us, it becomes clear that parts of the law in that sense have ended or have changed when the Lord Jesus Christ came. Uh, The New Testament writers stress the point that we're no longer to offer sacrifices for our sins according to the laws of the Old Testament because Jesus' death was a once-for-all-time sacrifice for our sins and it brought the sacrificial laws we find particularly in Leviticus to an end. And there are other parts of the law which are no longer in effect or no longer in effect in the same way too, such as the laws given to the nation of Israel in relation to how it was to be governed as a nation. Uh, And there are other parts too which we could list. But there is one part of the law which continues into the New Testament and for all those living after the time of the New Testament, it's not the sacrificial law, it's not the civil government law, but it's what we might call the moral law. The moral law is the law that God has given to govern our lives, to govern how we should live, what, how we should conduct ourselves. And it's summarised for us in the Ten Commandments. 
But it is, as we look at the Ten Commandments, it's important for us to understand exactly how the law continues for us. It does not present to us a way to be right with God. Keeping the Ten Commandments is not a way to get into God's good books and to earn his favour. When we think that that's how the law works, we misunderstand it, we misuse it. And that's exactly what Jesus and the Apostle Paul in particular criticised the Pharisees for doing in the New Testament. Uh, Paying attention to the law is not a bad thing. But paying attention to the law in order to try and justify yourself before God is. And so as we study the Ten Commandments in detail, there are three things that we ought to keep realising. First, we... We ought to keep realising that we have not kept and we continue to break the commandments. Secondly, we ought to realise that Jesus Christ is the one person who has kept these commandments. And thirdly, because he kept these commandments as God's appointed redeemer, all who now turn to him, who turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, who acknowledge that they've repeatedly broken God's law, who acknowledge that Jesus Christ is their only hope before God, all who do so are now enabled by God's grace to obey these commandments in greater and greater measure. Now, with all that said, we're looking today at the second commandment, which is found in uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. It's printed on page 7 of the order of worship for you to look down at. And it says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And I want us to see three things as we look at the second commandment today. I want us to see what it commands why it's important, and why it will one day fade. Firstly then, what it commands. What exactly are we commanded to do and not do in the second commandment? Well, at first glance, it seems as though God is forbidding us from making any art, or at least any art that seeks to represent anything in heaven, that's in the sky, anything on earth, and anything in the sea. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, God says, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Now, I'm not an expert in art, but if this is referring to art in general, then I would have thought it rules out almost all pieces of art as a violation of the second commandment. But it is clear that God isn't forbidding art in general here. And it becomes clear to us when we realise that the second commandment is all about worship. We see that in what God goes on to say in the beginning of verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, he says. The language of bow down and serve is language of worship. And the term that's used in verse 4 as well, the term carved image, is a term that was mainly used to refer to idol worship. That is making things specifically with the purpose of either worshipping it or using it to help you to worship God. The second commandment is all about worship. Now, the first commandment is all about who we are to worship, 
You shall have no other gods before me, God says. We are to worship God alone exclusively. And the second commandment answers the follow-up question, which is, how then are we to worship God? What does it mean to worship God rightly? And to answer that question, we need to think about why it is that God forbids us to make a carved image of anything in heaven or in the earth or in the sea, which is to say we're not to make a carved image of anything when it comes to worshipping God. God is showing us that we are not to represent God in the form of anything in all creation. When we come together to worship God, we're not to focus our attention on any statue or any painting or any image or a crucifix even. Why not? Because, quite simply, nothing in creation, nothing in the sky, nothing on earth, nothing in the sea, nothing adequately represents God. The problem with making images to help us worship God is that God cannot be adequately and accurately represented in any image we could make. A few years ago, an artist was commissioned to make a statue of the footballer Cristiano Ronaldo uh, to be on show in Ronaldo's home island, Madeira. Uh, And you might remember that, that when the statue was made, when it was finished... It very quickly became a meme on the internet, an online joke, with people pointing out how it did not look like Cristiano Ronaldo at all, and people putting side by side with this statue pictures of people who it looked like a lot more than it looked like Ronaldo. And it's a little bit like that with any image of God that we try to make. It inevitably falls so far short of being an accurate representation of God's. Just think about who God is. He is not a finite creature. He's infinite. He's a spirit. He is invisible. His power is not limited by anything. He does whatever he pleases. He is not confined to one space, but he's present everywhere. Any attempt to create an image of God is incapable of portraying these things. And instead, it portrays him to be the opposite. In the words of Philip Ryken, it makes the infinite God finite, the invisible God visible, the omnipotent God impotent, the all-present God local, the living God dead, and the spiritual God material. In short, it makes him the exact opposite of who he actually is. Now, with all of the Ten Commandments, something helpful to keep in mind is that There are blatant ways of breaking each commandment, and there are less blatant ways of breaking each commandment. Uh, And that is true of the second commandment. So, we break the second commandment blatantly whenever we create an image of God, or whenever we think that it is a positive thing for church buildings to be decorated with pieces of art that are designed to try and represent God. That is a blatant breaking of the second commandment. And sadly, throughout the history of the Christian church, this has been a practice that has far too easily been accepted. If you were to walk into an Eastern Orthodox church building or a Roman Catholic church building, and even many Protestant church buildings today, you would find these man-made images of God 
and other images that are designed to help us to worship God. I know that some of you here today are from these church backgrounds. I'm not saying this to offend you. I'm really glad that you're here. But when you walk into one of those church buildings and you see it decorated in man-made images of God, it should bother you. It should bother you because of the second commandment. You shouldn't be comfortable with that. And there are many Christians today who think that it's a good thing to have man-made images of God, pictures of Jesus, in their homes, on their walls, on the mantelpiece. Friends, that's not a good thing. It is a blatant breaking of the second commandment. The reason it's a blatant breaking of the second commandment is because it ignores the principle that lies behind the second commandment, which is this. God has the authority to reveal himself to us. Only God has that authority. That is to say, God tells us what he is like, not the other way around. Every now and then you come across somebody who thinks that they've got you sussed, don't you? Um, They think that they know the kind of person you are. They think they know what your character is like, what you like and dislike and so on. And they might say something like, I've come across people like you before. And sometimes we take offence at that because deep down we know that they've put their finger on something that is true about us and we wish that it wasn't. But sometimes their assessment is off. And and what offends us is the audacity of the person to to think that they can box us off into a certain category. Friends, if that is an offence to us, how much more is it an offence to God when we think that we can box him off by representing him in such and such a way? That is not an honour that belongs to us. Yet whenever we try to represent him by creating an image of him, by creating an image of something that is supposed to help us worship him, we're saying to him, God, I've got you sussed. I know what you're like. I know how you like to be portrayed and how you like to be worshipped. Which gives us an insight as well into the less blatant ways that we can break the second commandment because the second commandment does not only forbid us from making physical images of God that inevitably fall, uh, fall far short of adequately representing him, but it also forbids us from painting pictures in our minds of what God is like where those pictures don't fit with what God tells us he is like in the Bible. You know, don't you, the, the sentence that begins, I like to think of God as should almost never be spoken. Unless what follows is, I like to think of God as the God he has revealed himself to be and not the God I would like him to be. But but usually what follows is, I like to think of God as X and not Y. I like to think of God as a God of love who always forgives and never judges, as a God who gives us freedom to live as we please and makes no demands of us. That kind of thinking, less blatantly, is a breaking of the second commandment because God is the one who tells us what he is like, not the other way around. Another less blatant way we can break the second commandment is by thinking that we can worship God however we want. Remember that this commandment is given in the context of worship. 
God is instructing us in how we are and how we are not to worship him when we gather together like this. And what we see in the history of Israel and the history of God's people throughout the Old Testament is that things go badly whenever Israel thinks that they can choose how to worship God. When they build altars in the places that God hadn't told them to. When they offer sacrifices and worship in the temple in ways that God's not instructed them to. And often people think that because things change when we get to the New Testament, the only thing that matters now when it comes to worshipping God is whether we're sincere about it, whether our hearts are in the right place. And that's certainly an important aspect of worshipping God. In fact, time and again in the Old Testament, God critiqued his people for doing things outwardly, but in their hearts being far from him. But even when we get to the New Testament, the principle behind the second commandment still stands. God cares about how he is worshipped. Just as we don't get to make an image of God to represent him, we don't get to set the agenda when it comes to worshipping him. This means that when we come to church, the question is not, how would I like to worship God? But how does God instruct me to worship him? And the answer to that question includes our motives. We ought to desire to worship God and not merely go through the motions of worshipping him, but it also extends to our conduct as well as we worship God. It affects our tone. Um, There ought to be a reverence to our worship rather than it being casual. It affects our content in worship. The, the, the content of a church worship service should not merely be the thoughts of the person up the front or the people in the room, but the very word of God. It affects our focus in worship. We are not center stage here. We are not the focus when we come to worship God. And we know that this is the way in which we are to worship God because we don't only have the second commandment to instruct us in how to rightly worship him but we have the whole of the bible and the whole of the bible from start to finish is pressing upon us at this point the only way that god can be worshipped is through jesus christ the son of god the way to worship the god of the bible the triune god father son and holy spirit is to come through the son The Son was sent by the Father and anointed by the Spirit to live the life that we're commanded to and yet cannot live. And to die not only as an example to us of sacrificial love, but to die a redeeming, atoning death, wiping out our many sins by shedding his precious blood. And he rose from the dead and revealed to us that he is the only way for us to be brought back to God and worship him. And when we begin to realise all that he has done for us, all that he has done out of God's great love for us, we no longer want to be the centre of attention. But we want him to be the centre of attention. We want our worship to be shaped by what he has done for us, not by, we, not by what we would like to do for him. We want to hear from him week after week. We want to hear the good news of the gospel and his loving instruction to us. We don't want to listen to ourselves. 
We don't want our own ideas shaping our worship, but we want it all to be shaped by God who reveals himself in Christ and through the Bible. So our worship is to be Christ-centred and Bible-driven. Yes, God wants sincere worshippers, but he wants sincere worshippers who are concerned to make sure that he is worshipped in the right way, as he instructs in the right tone, with the right content and the right focus. Uh, This is, isn't it, the the time of year where many people are looking for a church to settle in? And if that's you, keep these things in mind. Keep the second commandment in view as you make your decision. That's what we're commanded in the second commandment. These next two points are going to be much briefer. So secondly, why is the second commandment important? Why is it important that we take seriously how we worship God? Well, there's one answer that God gives in the commandment itself, and it's in the form of a reason, a warning, and a promise. The reason God gives for why he cares about how we worship him is near the beginning of verse 5. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, Initially, that sounds strange to us, doesn't it? We tend to associate jealousy with envy, being envious of someone else, uh, of who they are or what they have. Uh, But that's not what the word jealous means here. Uh, The word jealous here refers to an intense love that God feels towards his people. Uh, It's a word that we could translate as zeal. God is zealous. He is passionate about his people, and so he wants them to worship him rightly. It's a little bit like the kind of love that we recognise should be present in a healthy marriage relationship. The wife who loves her husband uh, loves him with such an intensity that she is, in a sense, jealous for his affection. She knows that it's not right for him to give his affection to another woman, And she passionately desires that he is faithful to her in giving his exclusive affection to her in that sense. We recognise, don't we, that this kind of intensity in a marriage relationship is right. Because if the husband was to come home and confess to his wife that he had been unfaithful, and if the wife's response was simply to say, well, I, I suppose we should get in touch with the solicitors in the morning then, shed no tears, not at all be angry, then we would say there is an unhealthy marriage because the zeal, the intensity of love that should be present is not there. There's no jealousy for the other's affection. There should be tears. There should be anger. It should hurt. And so when God gives us the reason for us keeping the second commandment, for us taking seriously how we are to worship him, when he, when he gives the reason as his, his jealousy for us, he, ex, he is expressing the intensity of his love for his people. And just as a wife's love for her husband ought to mean that he takes seriously his commitment to her, God's love for us ought to mean that we take seriously our commitment to him and his instruction. And it shows us that, that this commandment and all of the commandments... They're not merely loveless stipulations of a contract. But they're terms of a covenant relationship that God has established with us 
showing us what covenant faithfulness looks like on our part. And just as God's covenant love for his people led him to action, so our love in response to God's ought to lead us to action. The Lord Jesus could not have said this more clearly, could even in John 14 verse 15 when he said to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The intensity of God's love for us shows us that how we worship God is important. But God also includes a warning and a promise in verses 5 and 6. He says there that he is a God who visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what is that all about? Well, simply, God means what he says. And what he says in in the warning of verse 5, that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, is that there are consequences for you if you disregard the right worship of God. This word, iniquity, refers to something being twisted or perverted, God is saying that the worship of anything other than God and the failure to take seriously how God has instructed us to worship him is a twisting and a perversion of what God intends for us. And what is striking in both the warning and the promise is that the consequences that follow not worshipping God, not taking his instructions seriously, are consequences not only for you as an individual, but also for others, in particular in a family setting. In the warning of verse 5, God speaks of the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation being punished for the sins of their father or their grandfather or their great-grandfather. And the promise of verse 6, God speaks of showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments, which we should understand as, again, taking place in the context of a family down through the generations to thousands. Now, I do realise that instinctively we, we don't like that idea. How is this fair for God to punish children for their ancestors' sins, to bless, their answer, uh, to bless them for their ancestors' faithfulness? <laughs> There's, no, there's absolutely no way that I can address all of the issues related to that today. But let me just quickly address two key points. The first is that you ultimately have to answer this question. Who gets to determine what is fair? Us or God? Now, of course, we must answer that by saying God is the one who gets to determine what is fair. And so if... What we find when we come to the Bible is that God deals with us not only as individuals, but also as families, which is to say that we have responsibility before God not only for ourselves as individuals, but for our children too. And we have to accept that as being fair. And we have to reorient our thinking in light of the Bible and not in light of our culture, which sees only individual responsibility. But the second thing to say is this. Notice how the warning of verse 5 and the promise of verse 6 are not symmetrical. 
That is, the, the promise of verse 6 is not the complete opposite of verse 5. It's not the exact opposite. The extent of the promise in verse 6 reaches further than the extent of the warning in verse 5. The consequences for those who hate God in verse 5 extends only to the third and fourth generation, whereas the blessing of the promise in verse 6 extends to thousands. They're not symmetrical in that way. And notice as well that there is a focus on individual responsibility in verse 5. When God speaks of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, he's implying that the third and fourth generation persist in their hatred of God in the same way that their ancestors did. God is not speaking here of a fixed law that says if you don't worship God, then four generations of your family will automatically be cast aside. That's not what he's saying. In fact, because God specifically says that the consequences will be felt by the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, which is to say those who don't love him, he is holding out an invitation as if to say, you can turn from your hatred to worship God. Repent of your sin. Come to Jesus Christ. It is not a foregone conclusion. And that should assure those of us who who haven't grown up in Christian families. If that's you, you are not a foregone conclusion. You are not beyond the pale, as it were, but God extends to you the invitation to come and worship him. He does to everybody. And he attaches the promise that all who do come to him through Jesus Christ in repentance and in faith, they will be a source of blessing to their children. Through them, God will show his steadfast love. That does not mean that every child of every Christian parent will be saved, but it does mean that they will experience the steadfast love of God in a way that children of non-Christian parents don't. Now, all of this... Just to pull it through a little bit, all of this has serious applications for us. The fact that God does not only deal with individuals, but also families in this way, it has obvious implications for those of us with children. How seriously do we as families treat worshipping God rightly? What significance do we give to gathering with God's people on Sundays to worship him? How committed are we to worshiping God in our homes as families and personally as parents? These things affect our children, for better or worse. For those of you who are not married, who don't have families, but who one day hope to, The warning and the promise attached to the second commandment here, it affects you too. It affects who you should view as a suitable partner for marriage. Friends, if you marry somebody who does not share your faith, if you marry a non-Christian, they're simply not going to take seriously the right worship of God. And you need to be aware of the consequences that that may well have on any children that you might have. Even if your potential husband or wife professes to be a Christian, one question you need to ask is, how seriously do they take worshipping God rightly? That's a more important question than whether you get along, whether you have similar interests, aspirations, and so on. 
And, and there's one obvious application to those of you who are here who have not yet come to God. If you want to be a source of blessing to your family, not only now, but down through generations, then you need to respond and worship God as he commands you to, as he calls you to, even today. You need to turn in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know some of these things are heavy, perhaps very personal to you. If you have questions, concerns, you know that we can talk about these things any time. But I want to end briefly by considering that this commandment will one day fade. That's not to say that God will one day relax the terms of his commandment and allow us to make images of him and worship him in other ways. But there will come a day when we'll have no desire, no inclination to worship God in any other way than he commands. One of the, heart, one of the problems at the heart of the second commandment is that anything we make to, to visibly represent God always fails to do that. But behind the second commandment, in a sense, is, is the acknowledgement that we as human beings... We not only want to hear from God, but we want to see him, don't we? We want to see him. We, we have this desire to see God with our eyes. As part of my preparation for, for preaching on the Ten Commandments, I listened to a, a series of sermons on Deuteronomy by an American minister named Justin Borger. And he picked up on this theme of wanting to see God theme that keeps coming up in the Bible, particularly in the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Moses, the one through whom God gave us the law, he, he longed to see God, didn't he? He's even described at his death in Deuteronomy 34 as the prophet who saw God face to face. And, and that is something that each of us longs for. And this Justin Borger, he, he quoted an author in one of his sermons named, named Andy Crouch, and he wrote this. We arrive in the world looking for a face. This is how babies are born. After an ordinary delivery, after the first few startled cries, newborn baby infants typically spend an hour or so in a stage that doctors call quiet alert. Although they can only focus their vision 8 to 12 inches away, their eyes are wide open. They're searching. They're looking for a face. It's how you enter the world looking, searching for a face. And there is something powerful, isn't there, about a familiar face? Think of those times that you've been handed a baby, a newborn baby, only for it to cry because it doesn't recognize your face. Even later in life, too, you know, a few years ago, Carrie, my wife and I, we visited one of my dad's brothers in Italy. Um, my dad had passed away nearly 10 years before this trip, but I remember being stood listening to my uncle talk and, and experiencing the strangest of feelings, which I realized was because in a particular light, from a particular angle, he, he looked the spitting image of my dad. There was a familiar face that I hadn't seen in almost a decade. Friends, one day the Bible teaches us we will see God face to face. And not as Moses saw him, 
not as the apostles saw Jesus, as they looked him in the eye. Because the day we see God face to face, we'll see him with new eyes that are able to properly behold his glory. We'll see him with renewed hearts that will rightly be moved and awestruck. And we'll have the ability to respond to him in pure worship. And on that day, the second commandment will fade into the background. Because if we were to hear it read at that moment, we would laugh and we would say, of course, there is nothing in all the world that can represent the beauty of this face. It's the face we're longing for, the face we're searching for. Until that day, where do we find God's face? We find it reflected in his people. As we grow in faith, as we grow in godly living, being conformed, being remade, being renewed in the image of God, the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, friends, is motivation for godly living. Here is motivation for taking seriously this command to worship God rightly. Because as we do so, God's face, the face we long to see, is more clearly seen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you again to confess that the many ways in which we regularly break this uh, second commandment of yours, how we picture you regularly in our minds as the God we would like to be there rather than the God who is there. Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts. We pray that you would continue to renew us and, and remake us so that we would worship you rightly. And we ask that as we do that, we would each be blessed by uh, seeing your image reflected more and more clearly in your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the connect page on our website trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.